Thank you, Lord, so much for this rich passage, which we have the privilege of studying this week. Thank you for the deep truths within your word. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to discuss these truths. And Lord, may this time just bring you honor and glory, all for your glory. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so due to time, I'm not going to be reading each section of Scripture, but I recommend that you have your Bibles open to Romans 8, 18 through 39, so that you can follow along with me as I reference different verses. Have you ever had something planned that was so special you just couldn't wait for it to happen? Maybe a wedding or the birth of a child or even a big family gathering for a very special occasion. Some time in your life when you spent all of your efforts for this particular event, anticipating it with such a joyful heart and planning for it every moment you had an opportunity. You may have encountered obstacles along the way that caused you to doubt if it would ever happen, which made it very difficult to believe that when that event occurred, it would all come together and be wonderful. I'm reminded of the time when we were getting ready for our oldest daughter, Rachel, and her husband, Nathan, to be married. We had months of preparation, and just days before their wedding day, both my father and Joe's mother went into the hospital. To say these events threw a wrench in things would be an understatement. During this time, as difficult as it was for our family, we just had to keep our focus on the main event and continue to press on knowing that despite these trials that we faced, at the end of the wedding day, Rachel and Nathan would be married, which was our ultimate goal of the past months of planning. This was the best analogy from a human perspective that I could think of to help us think about today's passage. There is an ultimate goal in the life of a Christian that all things are working together for and anticipating. Everything we encounter in life is part of a much broader and bigger plan than we can ever imagine. All things are working together toward this purpose and God's eternal plan for salvation, his divine purpose, which is to glorify Jesus by making him, as we see in verse 29, the firstborn among many brothers. God's purpose set before the foundation of the world that he is actively working toward in each of our lives now and that God will see through to completion. No matter how bleak things look or how distressful times become, God's divine purpose will not be thwarted. In this passage, I believe we not only see God's ultimate purpose for all th that all things are working toward, but we also see three truths for true believers within God's divine purpose. Three divine truths for the saints. The first section of our text, verses 18 through 27, gives us a view of the divine hope that we have as believers. Our divine hope, which is our glorification. We ended last week discussing the suffering we can expect as Christians. As Gail so eloquently put it, 
Suffering is the refining process through which we must pass to be ready for our future state of glory. We begin today with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Nothing we face in this life can ever be comp- even be compared to what we have waiting for us in glory. The type of suffering being referred to here is explained in verse 17 as sharing in the suffering of Christ. It's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Suffering like Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today, as Christians in America, we experience an insignificant amount of persecution. We may be reviled, cast out, made fun of, and ridiculed, But things are headed in a more negative direction for Christians, and we may understand these verses to a greater extent in our near future. The writing is on the wall. It is clear that people are more and more hostile toward anyone who stands up for their faith in Jesus Christ. When persecution occurs, it should not surprise us. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul understood this type of suffering. He was beaten and thrown in prison. He endured, according to 2 Corinthians, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Paul understood that all of the suffering endured in this lifetime is insignificant in comparison to the ultimate purposes of God the glory to be revealed, which will last an eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 describes it this way. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light momentary affliction, which I remember Vicki Krivak's teaching on, and she sprayed a mist in the air to describe it as a vapor. Our moment of suffering here is but a vapor which appears and quickly vanishes in comparison, to the, in comparison to the overwhelmingly amazing eternal glory that we have in Christ. When we experience momentary suffering, we can rejoice and be glad because the end result is our reward of being brought to eternal glory. This is how James can tell us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, describes us in the end. This is why when suffering we should have an eternal perspective because all of the suffering that we endure doesn't hold a candle to the glory that we will experience for an eternity. Everything we go through on this earth is part of our sanctification, making us more and more like Christ and is preparing us for an end goal, which is our becoming like Christ in his glory and worshiping him forever. Let's move on to verses 19 to 27, and I think things are going to be a little bit more clear. 
When you look at this next section of verses, you see three things that are groaning. Verse 22 speaks of creation groaning. Verse 23 speaks of those who have the first fruits of the Spirit groaning. And verse 26 says, even the Holy Spirit is groaning. So what is all this groaning about? We're told in verse 19 that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Then in verse 20 and 21, we see that creation was subject to futility and is waiting to be set free from bondage. So what does all of this mean? When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, everything was affected. God cursed man and woman, and it was at this same time that the rest of his creation was subjected to futility and placed in bondage. And as a result, it can no longer produce perfectly and be all that it was created to be. In Genesis 3, 17 to 18, we read, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it and all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. All animals, plants, mountains, streams, rivers, and all of the rest of creation is personified here in our verses in Romans as anxiously awaiting ever since the fall with eager anticipation for the day when the sons of God will be revealed and brought to glory. Like a small child waiting to get to a final destination who asks, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Creation is waiting and anticipating are they there yet? Are they there yet? Creation waits for the saints to be revealed in all their glory with the hope of being set free from the futile life it has been subjected to ever since the fall of man. In the beginning, creation was perfect. Since the fall, it has been able, unable to fulfill its original intent. Therefore, creation is described as groaning with birth pains, waiting for this time. When you think about this type of groaning with birth, with pains of childbirth, it's actually describing a pain that has a blessed end. When giving birth, women endure this pain and agony, and after this pain, they get the blessed little baby that they waited for. This is the type of groaning that creation is described as having, groaning in pain ever since being subjected to a life of uselessness, a life of worthlessness because of sin, and awaiting the blessed day when it will be set free from futility. The day described in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Ever since the fall of man, creation has been anxiously awaiting, groaning for the end of time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. At this time, creation will finally be what God intended it to be. No more death, no more decay, no more thorns and thistles, no more sin-filled corruption permeating throughout everything and wreaking havoc on all of creation. Creation was cursed at the fall of man, and creation will be made new after the glorification of man. Not only is creation groaning for this time, but so are the saints. According to verse 23, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit are believers. Described here as first fruits of the Spirit because we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit here and now. And just like the first fruits of a harvest for a farmer are a foretaste of what is to come, 
the first fruits of the Spirit currently exhibited in us are just a glimpse of what is to come when all of the saints are revealed in full glory. Believers are waiting and groaning for our glorification, waiting and groaning as we struggle with sin and desire for this sinful body of death and decay to be gone and exchanged for an eternal, perfect, glorified body. The day when, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, our natural perishable bodies that are sown in dishonor and weakness will become spiritual imperishable bodies raised in glory and power groaning like Paul was groaning in chapter 7 of Romans when he said in verse 24 wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death anxiously awaiting the time when there will be no more sin to fight because we will finally be like Jesus eagerly awaiting the completion of the inheritance we have through our adoption which is the redemption of our bodies. We learned about this in chapter 7, the time when we get rid of this flesh and we're made new, having a new glorified body to go with our new nature. That's what's described in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That glorious day when we will no longer battle our flesh and the sin that so easily entangles us, but instead we will be perfect. We will be like Christ. We are here on this earth battling our flesh and groaning for the day when we will be changed and be glorified in our transformed bodies. No more sin left to fight. This is the divine hope that we have that's unseen, which is mentioned in verses 24 and 25. The hope we have had since the day of our salvation, which will be culminated in the day of our glorification, to be like Christ and with him forever. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what we should keep our focus on when going through the suffering of this day. It's all worth it and can't compare to the ultimate end, which is glory. All of creation groans in this hope, as do all of the saints. And not only do these groan, but we see in verses 26 and 27 that the Spirit himself is also groaning. In the original Greek text in verse 26, the words us in are, really, are not there. So it really says the Spirit helps our weakness. Likewise, or in the same way that creation and saints are groaning, the Spirit helps our weakness. The idea is saints are weak and the Spirit helps our weakness. So how does the Spirit do this? One area we are weak is our prayers. So the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. Groanings too deep for words because no words are needed between the Father and the Spirit since the Father knows the mind of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. I just recently listened to a testimony of a woman from Ukraine who is enduring much suffering as they are being attacked by Russia. The interviewer asked how Christians in America can be praying for them. And her response made me think of this verse. 
She was overwhelmed, and she said that the people contacting them for help are so scared, and they don't know how to pray. They just say, please, please pray. As I was listening to her describing the pleas of the Ukrainian people, it occurred to me that it is times like this when in the midst of trials and tribulations, because we are weak and scared, and we don't know God's will for the situation, that we really don't know how best to pray. But the Spirit, who knows the will of God, intercedes for us with groanings beyond words, praying us through the situation into the will of the Father. The word for help here literally means that the Spirit takes on himself a part of the burden so that he not only helps and supports us in our weakness, but he actually lifts us up. The picture is likened to that of an infant who cannot support themselves. I think of when Paul prayed three times asking for God to remove his thorn in the flesh, and the answer Paul received in 2 Corinthians was, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is how Paul could boast in his suffering, because the weaker he became, the more God's power was revealed through his sufficient grace. These verses explain to us that the Holy Spirit is groaning without words to our Heavenly Father on our behalf, lifting us up to help support our weak and frail states as we wait for eternal glory with God in heaven forever. This is God's grace on our behalf, and part of how he is working all things together for our good, because God himself is working it all out. Our divine hope and God's eternal plan of salvation being brought to completion from beginning to end. And this brings us to the next section of our text, verses 28 to 30, shows us our divine security. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We all know these verses, or have probably heard them before. They are so familiar to us that I think they may be less impactful than they should be, and they're often misunderstood. Many people believe that these verses mean that God works out things for us to be happy and comfortable here on earth. But the good here is pointing to the ultimate good for believers and his plan of salvation. These verses explain to us that all things, everything, everything good and everything bad, every single detail that occurs in this life is being used by God for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Those called according to his purpose are all those who are saved, the saints. Being called according to his purpose, according to his will, according to what the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us now, and what he will complete in the end, our glorification. So everything we face here is leading to this good and fulfilling God's divine purpose. We experience that good now through gaining a deeper relationship with God as we are being refined through the circumstances he has placed before us, and we will experience the ultimate good when we are in glory forever. I don't understand it all, but I know this is true. I know God is working through all things, even the evil in this world. God is allowing it 
and orchestrating it for his ultimate purposes that are good for those who know him. Right now, our suffering should cause us to long for the day when it will all be over. Long for the day where sin will be no more. Catastrophe, sickness, destruction, murder, rape, strife, all of the evil things that occur as a result of sin in the world should cause us to hate sin and desire all the more for Jesus to return and put an end to all of it. We should also have a greater love for our holy God as he uses these circumstances to reveal himself to us in a more intimate way. We gain a better understanding of his faithfulness, his wisdom, his loving kindness, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all of his attributes as we go through this life. Not only the bad things, but the good things should also point us to him, knowing that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. All things, good and bad, should cause us to long for the day when we will experience the ultimate good of our Heavenly Father, the ultimate good of God's purpose, which is His glory in bringing many sons to glory. This verse gives us the plan, God's purpose for the saints, and they show us how God's purposes will not be thwarted, but instead will be completed by him and ultimately lead to our good. We are secure in him even as we go through persecution now or will go through persecution in the future because we know the end result is our glorification. That is the eternal good for us who are called that all things are working toward. Let's try to quickly discuss the meaning of some of the terms um, in an effort to better understand the security that we have in him. I relied heavily on John MacArthur's notes for these definitions. Please know that the understanding of these terms is based on many scriptures that we do not have time to discuss in our 30-minute lecture. So we have the word for new. This is a predetermined loving relationship based on the knowledge and plan of God before the foundation of the world. This is not referring to God knowing what will happen through observing it beforehand, but instead means God planned it beforehand. Predestined means to mark out, appoint, or determine beforehand. Called, God drawing himself to himself all those he has chosen for salvation. That's what called means. Justified means a divine judicial act whereby a holy God is able to declare a believing sinner righteous and acceptable before him because Christ has paid for that one's sin by his death on the cross. And then glorified. We touched on the meaning of this in the previous section, but I think Wayne Grudem defines glorification well, and he says, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now, in light of these definitions, let's go back to the verses and try to understand what's being taught. If you are saved, if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, 
and you have repented of your sins, then these verses explain how that relationship came about and what the ultimate plan is. Before the foundation of the world, before creation, God had a predetermined loving relationship set in place for you. His plan before the foundation of the world was set for those whom he determined to place his love upon. He appointed this plan for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. He set this plan beforehand, and he put this plan in motion, and each person that he intimately knew before the foundation of the earth, he drew to himself. He made them righteous through the blood of Jesus by imputing Christ's righteousness to their account, and he also gave them a perfect resurrected body like Christ. This is the complete plan of salvation from beginning to end. Let me repeat this. Those he determined before the foundation of the world to bestow his love upon and planned to conform to Christ's image, he drew to himself. Those he drew to himself, he declared righteous because of what Christ did on the cross. And those he declared righteous, he also gave a perfect resurrected body like Christ. I'm overwhelmed by that. All of these terms are in past tense for a reason. Because this is God's predetermined plan for salvation from beginning to end. And Paul uses past tense to show that it is guaranteed as though it already occurred. God determined who he would save before the foundation of the earth. And he does the work from beginning to end. This is why we are secure. It is his plan, and he accomplishes his goals. His plan cannot be thwarted, and it is a done deal. This is the security we have as Christians. This is what Ephesians 4.30 is referring to. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because of God's predetermined plan, once we are saved, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and the promise that God will one day complete his plan and we will be glorified. We are secure that if we are justified through Christ, we will be glorified in him. We cannot lose our salvation. So many people believe they can lose their salvation, but this passage makes it clear that losing salvation is impossible because God has determined this plan beforehand, and therefore we are completely secure in his plan of salvation. Theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones stated this so well when he said, salvation cannot stop at any point short of entire perfection, or it is not salvation. But wait, there's more. There is more to these verses that we can't overlook. When we read in the end of verse 29 that the saints are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There is a purpose in God's purpose for those he chose to save. In order that Christ might be firstborn among many brothers. The word for firstborn here is a special word with more meaning than can be conveyed through the translation that we are given. The word is prototokos. 
The meaning behind this word conveys more than firstborn. To understand its meaning, I'm going to read Colossians verses one, Colossians chapter one verses fifteen through eighteen that uses the same word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." Christ is preeminent. He is the head of all things. He is above all things. He is creator, and by him and through him all things exist, and he holds all things together. That is the meaning behind the word firstborn. Christ is first above all things. So God has a predetermined plan for those he chose before the foundation of the world to be conformed to Christ's image so that Christ is the preeminent one among us. Christ is above all, and we as adopted sons share in that great inheritance with our glorified bodies, and we will praise and worship and bring him glory for eternity, all for his glory. Nothing can take this away from us. This is God's predetermined plan, and it will come to pass. And we are secure because he knew before the foundation of the world that this is the way he determined it will be. Everything that happens is happening for a reason, and all of it is working toward that glorious day when we will receive our full inheritance, having been made like Christ in our glorified bodies, to worship him and exalt his name forevermore. What God has started, he will finish, just as Paul stated in Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul anticipating skepticism, drives his point home in the next verses, which are some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. In verses 31 to 39, we see divine love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... With him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In these verses, we have the ultimate expression of God's love for us. These verses are making it clear to us that God is the one who does the work from beginning to end. And because he is for us, nothing can get in the way of his predetermined plan, his predetermined love for us and his plan. He is the one who justified us. He is the one who sent his only son to die for us. And if he loved us so much to do that, 
then he will complete the work and nothing can separate us from that love. Paul begins by asking who can make a charge against the elect, knowing that the answer is no person, no thing, no trial, no evil force, nothing we can ever imagine in our finite human brain can ever separate us from God's perfect plan of salvation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing. God has already declared us righteous, and there is therefore no condemnation for those who believe. Sometimes, when we're in the midst of terrible trials and difficulties, we can lose sight of this. We think God must have forgotten us, and we can get ourselves pretty depressed over the circumstances of our lives, allowing the grimness of what we see here on earth to rule us. But God does not forget us. He loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us. Christ endured the suffering on earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a gruesome death, and he was raised, and he is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Christ is our high priest. In addition to the groaning of the Holy Spirit, helping our weakness that we learned in the previous verses, we also have Christ in his exalted position, continually interceding for us. We have our triune God working through all things for our ultimate good and his eternal glory. As John MacArthur so clearly states, if we believe that God loved us so much when we were wretched and ungodly that he sent his son to die on the cross to bring us to himself, how could we believe that after we are saved, his love is not strong enough to keep us saved? Ladies, we should not forget this passage. Because God is for us, who can be against us? No matter what the circumstances, no matter how extreme the persecution of Christians becomes, or how difficult the circumstances we experience now are, we can have complete peace knowing that because of Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross, we are more than conquerors. In verse 36, Paul quotes from Psalm 44:22 to emphasize that we should not be surprised when we are persecuted for our faith. And he declared in the verses following that it is because of this faith in Jesus and what God did for us through him that we are more than conquerors. If God is able to resurrect Jesus and defeat sin and death, he is on our and he is on our side, then we have nothing to fear. May this passage encourage us that God has a divine plan and he is working it to completion. We have a divine hope for a glorious day and the trials and tribulations we face and will face do not compare to that glorious day when we will be with him in our redeemed bodies, praising and worshiping him forever. We have a divine security in this divine plan of salvation because of his divine love for us that nothing can separate us from. May we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that every single thing, both good and bad, is working together for his divine purposes, all for his glory and bringing many saints to glory. I was telling my mom that I was having such a difficult time describing this because it's so hard for us to grasp. It's beyond our comprehension what it will be like. And she quoted from 1 Corinthians 2.9, which I think expresses it so well. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation. Lord, that you put in place and that you will complete. We thank you for the security we have in you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, and give us a renewed longing for that day where we will be in glory with you forever, praising you forever. And help us to go each day and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.